Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters. I'm Paul Duncan. And I'm Scott B. Bomar. Songcraft brings you conversations with and about the men and women who've put pen to paper, hands to keyboards, and fingers to strings to create lyrics and music that stand the test of time. You probably know the names, and you definitely know the songs. We bring you the stories. Keep up with us via Facebook, Twitter, or our website by searching for one word, Songcraft Show. While Songcraft is always free, if you believe in our mission of preserving and presenting these important conversations, we invite you to visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. There you can help support us with a voluntary monthly pledge that will also give you access to bonus content and other extras as our way of saying thanks for your continued support. You're listening to Gonna Need Someone, one of the songs from the album Angels and One-Arm Jugglers by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Chris Barron. Best known as the lead singer of The Spin Doctors, who scored massive hits with Two Princes and Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, the Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter will join us later in the show to discuss his multifaceted career. Part one. You know, we have something in this interview that I thought was a first, but it's Uh actually not even close to a first. What's that? Is that we are interviewing someone whose music we covered in our high school band, <laughs> and now the thing that that makes Chris Baron unique is that we did like a lot of his songs. You know, I actually remember when we were in high school and we had our cover band. At one point, uh, we declared that the Spin Doctors was the perfect band, and I think I know why. It's because their format was very similar to ours. It was ours. And so, of course, we're like, well, that's perfect. That's- <laughs> right. It's If you got one bass, one guitar, and drums, yep. then that's the perfect band for They're us to cover. They're made in our image. <laughs> um, but it's it's actually not even close to the first time that we've interviewed someone who we covered in those Oh, yeah, we've, those we've talked to, to quite a few people, I think, who's... Uh, Wild thing, uh, Chip Taylor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we covered sitting on the dock of the bay. So Steve Cropper. Yeah. The, yeah. Now, not all of these were like advisable covers for us <laughs> at the time, but we did them. We just we I think jumped we right did, in. Uh, did did we do taking care of business? We did. We talked so to Randy Bachman. Randy Bachman. So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if you remember that we played China Grove. Yeah, Tom and, Johnston, Doobie Brothers. Yep. You know what's funny is we were in high school in the nineties. <laughs> So uh, maybe what we can say is that this is the first time we've interviewed uh, someone who was actually having hits at the time we were covering the songs. This is the first time we've interviewed someone that we covered in high school to the delight of our classmates. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Something they're like, oh, I know that song. It's on the radio. (laughs) I think probably the low point for us in terms of great song. Right. But in terms of reading the room and in terms of knowing what's appropriate for our audience might have been playing Peter Gabriel's Here Comes the Flood for <laughs> Homecoming. Right, in 10th grade. Yeah. Yeah. That's a real, that's a that's the one that gets them up and dancing. Yeah, that's the one that, that all the kids were clamoring for. <laughs> well, I think any band that had uh, both Smells Like Teen Spirit and uh, ABC by the Jackson 5 in their set list uh, probably needs to uh, be taken with a grain of salt in terms right. of knowing how to select material well, that, <laughs> that fits each other. I also remember, <laughs> even at the time, thinking like, man, it feels kind of herky-jerky going from Smells Like Teen Spirit into Summer of 69. <laughs> but but we did it. We did it. We, we never were slowed down by things like pacing right. or... Song selection. And, and so, kids, if you're listening, the lesson is, if you think something might be a bad idea, just do it. <laughs> just do it with all your might, and <laughs> right, it may work out right. one day. You may, you may find yourself then, you know, interviewing some of your heroes. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you, you know, and, and Chris Barron, to us, when we were in high school, I mean, this dude was like the coolest guy around. Totally. I mean, we, we were huge Spin Doctors fans back in the day, and uh, we were like those people that were kind of, I think, into the Spin Doctors before they got huge. I like to think so. so. Yeah. So then when uh, when everybody started listening, we're like, yeah, we, we've known about them for a long yeah, totally. time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, and, and you know what? I, I will say that that uh, Chris was, was gracious to us, and uh, you know, it went about as good as it could go meeting someone you know who you admired in your past, and, and yeah. frankly, I admire him now more than ever. Yeah, he was a super cool guy. It was really fun to have him over, and uh, and early in the interview, we'll let everybody else uh, sort of uh, discover that as it rolls. But we uh, we shared a little bit of our particular uh, significant <laughs> history. This was not the first time that we met Chris Barron. It wasn't, and uh, so we share a little bit about that with uh, with Chris himself, which we did not uh, we didn't warn him about before we started rolling. Nope. We just uh, we just sort of surprised him. So um, anyway, it was a lot of fun and. Uh, 
you know, the getting the opportunity to to meet somebody where you know, man, if I could go back in time and tell my high school self, this dude's gonna come over to your house one day. Yep, I would have been like, no way. That's true. Yeah. Now if we could just find a way to get Jennifer Aniston over here. <laughs> Part two. Chris Barron is best known as the lead singer of The Spin Doctors, whose major label debut album, Pocketful of Kryptonite, spawned the hit singles Little Miss Can't Be Wrong, Two Princes, Jimmy Olsen's Blues, What Time Is It, and How Could You Want Him When You Know You Could Have Me. The album was certified five times platinum and earned the band an American Music Award nomination for Favorite Pop Rock Album, as well as a Grammy nomination for Best Rock Performance. The Spin Doctors built a loyal fan base through relentless touring, including a key stint as members of the Horde Festival, alongside Widespread Panic, Blues Traveler, and Fish. Additional albums followed, including Turn It Upside Down, another platinum release that spawned the charting singles Cleopatra's Cat and You Let Your Heart Go Too Fast. The band eventually parted ways after Barron experienced vocal cord paralysis and was told he may never sing again. When his voice returned, Barron embarked on what he has called a journeyman songwriting experience, branching out to compose lyrics and music that draw from a variety of genres and influences. He returned to music with his debut solo album, Shag. His most recent release, Angels and One-Armed Jugglers, emerged after yet another struggle with vocal cord paralysis. The album has earned enthusiastic critical reviews and has given Chris an opportunity to pursue a solo career while continuing to perform with a reunited Spin Doctors. The band recently celebrated the 30th anniversary of its formation. Chris, welcome to Songcraft. Hey, thank you for having me. It is good to have you here at uh, at Songcraft World Headquarters in Inglewood, California. <laughs> um, so I, I got to tell you before we start this this interview, um, we have have interviewed a lot of people from a lot of different uh, genres, a lot of different eras. Um, we, you know, we talk to writers, uh, that we are huge fans of to, to writers that frankly, sometimes we're learning about hate. as we're, yeah, that we hate. We like to talk to writers that we hate. Um, sometimes we like them until we talk to them. <laughs> right. But, uh, I just had to say that it occurred to me this morning that Paul and I, who grew up together in Nashville, Tennessee, uh-huh. uh, and are both now in the music business. The first time we ever went backstage at a concert was 1993. Starwood Amphitheater, Spin Doctors. No way. With Soul Asylum and Screaming Trees. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So I keep every... I have the ticket oh, to every concert I've ever been to. No way. There is the backstage pass. No right way. Right there. Signed by you and Mark and even my ticket stub. Oh, yeah. man. Signed by you. So... The three of us have met before. That's, that's true. That is totally classic. I'm sure and it made a huge impression. You totally remember. Were you, were you guys just like little pellets back then? Or? We were probably, what, 17? 93, yeah. Oh, okay. We would have been um, juniors in high school. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Playing you guys' stuff in our band. Uh-huh. Yeah. We played, I think we played like five Spin Doctor songs yeah. off the first record in no our way. band. Including a, an ill-advised medley of Jimmy Olsen's Blues, <laughs> Sweet Home Alabama, and... Uh, Warren Zevon. Uh, Werewolves of London. Werewolves of London. Yeah. Not ill-advised at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's... It was like I mean, Spin Doctors, Skinner, Warren Zevon. Yeah, it all makes look, sense. That's right? The, that's right? The, these songs all have the <laughs> same chord <laughs> progression. <laughs> right. It's like Spinner or Skin Doctors. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so all that to say, we, we've come full circle. Yeah. Our first backstage experience, and, and here we and are. now your first podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so and, so we just gave you a fan ambush, <laughs> right, a fan bush, right. a yeah. fan bush. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so that's cool. But um, talk a little bit about uh, as a as a kid. I know that you you listen, man. Don't tell me what to do. Okay. <laughs> I know we've met be before, but don't, yeah. don't, don't, boss me don't think you can like, do you you're think? not the boss of me, you know? <laughs> when, when you were a kid, I know you spent some, some time in Australia when you were a kid yeah. and, and, and in New York and just talk a little bit about your environments that you were growing up in and what kind of music you were soaking up that, that started kind of making an impression on you, kind of forming your sensibilities uh, at, at an early age. God, you know, that's, I love that question. Uh, you know, I have like a very typical psychological profile for a lead singer. <laughs> Guys like Jim Morrison and a lot of lead singers, you know, my dad was in the Navy, so I was born in Hawaii, <laughs> so I might not even be American. <laughs> um, it has been questioned of others who you know, were born. Yeah, you know, born in Hawaii is the whole thing, you know, is you might have been on the Kenya. table. It's all on the table. Um, born in Hawaii, elementary school in Australia. Um, like... Um, 
I think I've thought about this. You know, when I was a really little kid, um, my dad and mom would both um, sing to my little brother and I when we were going to bed. My mom had like just like a Joan Baez songbook and like sort of a 60s songbook. And she would sing um, um, just and Joan Collins, you know, like these old these old tunes, a lot of folk songs, and just straight sing them. Like right. she couldn't read music, but she had the book, so she had the lyrics. And she would just like do the melody just like super straight. Yeah. And my dad would just make up these weird story songs that hmm. were like just crazy. We'd be like, sing us, sing about a a pig that meets a cat, you know, <laughs> in Kalamazoo. And right, right. my dad would just make up a song. Right. And so it's funny because I, I thought about this like some years ago and I was like, man, that is like, that is pretty much my musicality in a nutshell. <laughs> like on one hand, on one hand, I um, am super organized musically. Like I've studied music theory. Um, I... I know a lot of chords, you know what I mean? I, I think that I'm pretty, as far as like songwriters and, and musicians go, I think I'm, I'm pretty structurally sound hmm. in, the, in the ideas and concepts yeah. of the structure of a song, you know? And then on the other hand, I'm like finger painting, you know? <laughs> and, and there's a, another side of me that's super improvisational, super intuitive, um, and just like feeling my way mm. through. And it's funny, it's like my left foot and my right foot. You know, it's like if I, if the structure isn't helping me, I fall into mm. like an intuitive kind of, you know, childlike right. approach. And, and then if that starts to like not work, I will go into like a kind of a structural approach. So, you know, my dad listened to tons of country music mm. as a kid. Um, you know, my dad's from Massachusetts, but for some reason he just loved country music. So I, Grew up listening to um, like a lot of greatest hits stuff, like just Johnny Cash greatest hits, Marty Robbins mm. yeah. greatest hits, um, and then like the music of the time. You know, I grew up in the seventies, and so there was just just ubiquitous stuff like Fleetwood Mac and right. um, just the stuff that was around Simon and Garfunkel. Mm. You know, was something I kind of like. My parents were into, but then I. I have done a super deep dive of into like Paul Simon mm. and and the Simon and Garfunkel stuff. Yeah. Um uh, but it was like um you know the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, Chuck Berry and then like living in Australia, you know, I got turned on to like weird like Australian folk tunes, you know, that had this uh. like super oddball uh like it's Australia. They're like, we're Australia. We've got kangaroos and wallabies and koalas and stuff, and we got our own freaking way of doing it. And so, you know, there's like these old Australian tunes like, you know, Tommy Kangaroo Down, Smote, Tommy right. Kangaroo Down. It's like, what the, What are we talking about here? I don't even know what's happening anymore. And, um, you know, I mean, the freaking, the freaking uh, unofficial but kind of official national anthem was like Waltzing Matilda. Right. You know, and... Like most Americans just know, like waltzing Matilda, waltzing right. Matilda, you'll come a waltzing Matilda with me, dude. The verses of that song are crazy. <laughs> it's like once a jolly swagman camped by a billabong <laughs> under the shade of a coolabar tree. It's like twas brillig and the slithy toves did gyre and gimble in the wave. So, um, I mean, I guess what I'm saying is uh, to use an Australian like an Australian expression. You know, my musical background is, is, is what the Australians would call a, a dog's breakfast. <laughs> you know, it's just a hodgepodge of crazy stuff. But I think, I think um, in my case, you know, it wasn't a foregone conclusion at the time, but you look back and I gravitated to music in this crazy way mm -hmm. that I just fucking love music. And I always have. Yeah. And, um, and I've always been fascinated by, like, guitars and the trappings and um when i was like 8 or 9 my mom was like chris you're going to take guitar lessons and i was like nah <laughs> sounds like a pain in the butt you know right and um and then she started wheedling with me she's like chris if you learn to play guitar 
girls will love you. Yeah. And I'm like eight, so I'm like, ew. Yeah. <laughs> um, but nevertheless, I ended up taking guitar lessons. And then, you know, in, when I was like, you know, like 13 or 14, that's when I really started to kind of get into the guitar more. And I had a guitar teacher, and he taught me like a Harry Belafonte song and a Fleetwood Mac tune and you know, a Simon and Garfunkel tune. I took a chord from each of those songs and put them in my own order and was like playing them. And then he came for the next lesson. I didn't know if he was going to be pissed at me. Right. You know, I didn't know if he was going to yeah. be like, hey, you little fucker, you know, just yeah. play play what I tell you to play and like don't, stop fucking around, you know. Right. But he walks in and he sits down and I'm like, I was putting these chords together like this. And he was like, oh, that's cool. You know, you take some chords you like and you just play them and then just go like da-da-da-da-da, do-do-do-do-do along with that. And if you do that for long enough, you know, it kind of turns into words. You write those down in a notebook with the chords, and that's how you write songs. And I was like, what? <laughs> and he was like, yeah. And I was like, well, what about the squiggly lines and stuff? And he was like, do you think Bob Dylan and, and, and John Lennon know how to read music? And I was like, of course they do. <laughs> and he was like, no, they don't, they don't read music. That's how they write songs. And that was like, sprung. Because I also, like, also from an early age, um had like this very strong penchant for creative writing. Right. So at, at that point in time, I guess it was like a freshman in high school, so I was sort of getting into E.E. E. Cummings and po- writing poetry and stuff like that. So yeah. it, the two, the guitar thing, once I realized like, oh shit, you know, you could just, with some rudimentary guitar, you can just start writing tunes. Right. And I was already writing poetry, so it just mm. kind of came together really really quickly after that. And then I just started writing. Like, in my high school, I had tunes that were kind of like hits hmm. in my high school. Oh, hey. You know what I mean? Cause oh, the yeah. ultimate regional hit. Yeah, no, they were like, you know... <laughs> the region just, of this building. All my buddies were... All my friends were songwriters and stuff like that, so we were always writing, and we all had guitars, like, out in, um, you know, on the lawn and stuff like that. When the weather was good, we'd all be, like, sitting around playing tunes, and we didn't play covers like we played our own tunes hmm. so we have something in common in that you were playing your songs in high school and we were playing your songs in high school <laughs> <laughs> you'll hear from my lawyer yeah, but, um, but someone who would be a contemporary of yours for a long time was in high school with you at that time right was John yeah, Popper John Popper from Blue and Star I Home. are yeah very dear old friends wow I mean that you know there's another element for me of like just being crazy fucking lucky with the people I ran into and the opportunities I was afforded. You know, to go back to like early stuff, early Chris Barron history, whatever. <laughs> um, I I was in uh, middle school and um, I don't know what, I, I was taking like AP biology. So I had like an extra credit. And so I had room in my schedule for another elective, you know. So I'm like flipping through the catalog and I just see in the electives, it was like music theory. And I'm like, music theory? Huh. Must be like, you know, melodies and rhythm and stuff. You know, I'm right. like, I like music. <laughs> I'd be interested in learning the theories behind it. So I just take this class, and um, the teacher was Portia Sonnenfeld, who could have been like the conductor of you know, like a Phil, like a Philharmonic orchestra in, in like a major city, you know, mm, yeah. um, but just taught, did the, the, our orchestra and taught music theory. And um, she would play us something and then somebody in the class would be like, this is a record that I just really like, or this is a song that, you know, I blah, 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 you know, you give a little talk about it. Right. Um, but it didn't have to be any kind of a specific thing. And then she would like break it down. It's like somebody brought in like, you know, Beatles record mm. and played, I can't remember if it was like Rocky Raccoon or Maxwell Silverhammer or, you know, some some classic like Beatles tune. And she was like, oh, yeah, that's really interesting. You know, like she, she broke it down. It was just like, what they're doing is here's the melody and here's the chords. You know, we're in G or whatever, goes to like an F chord and they're using they go to the key of the chord for the moment that they're in the chord. So this note isn't in, you know, the key that they're in, but it's in this chord. Hmm. So it, when they hit that note, you know, in the context of the song, it's, 
it's got this really kind of interesting characteristic thing. And that was like every day. It's interesting to hear you talk about sort of the, the theory of music and that being your foundation because, you know, you ultimately moved to New York. You, you put together the Spin Doctors and you guys, you know, put out this pocket full of kryptonite record, which everyone knows now. But from the time that record came out, to the time that Little Miss Can't Be Wrong became a hit was like a year. So mm -hmm. you guys... Maybe more. You, maybe yeah. like maybe a year and a half, two years. So you're, you have this background of theory, but now you're out there playing live shows. And I mean, you guys, you, you just kind of made it happen by going out there and being evangelists for yourselves and, and doing all these live shows. I'd love to get your thoughts as a songwriter of, you know not just the the theory of music mm. or how you put songs together, but then how you might actually shape some things after you get this audience response and, and you know, how mm. that sort of, yeah. that, that feeds into itself, you know, of, of, of fine tuning based on audience response. No, it's, it's, you know, in um, David Burns book on music, he opens up with this discussion of, about how music is inherently environmental which is to say that, you know, people think like, you know, African music, like Kunga music is like, oh, it's, that's because, you know, it's easy to like stretch a skin across some wood and like, you know, it's like primitive people. It's like, no, that's, you're, you're making music out on an open plane. You need something that's going to like cut through. So the Kunga is like mm. this sound that is, it's the right instrument for the situation right. and the music evolved to fit the situation. So like I, I went from like sitting in my bedroom, you know, on the edge of my bed, like right. mooning about girls to like being in a fucking bar. And it was like, I went from, you know, just being like, Oh, I got this waitress. Her button <laughs> said Mabel. She cleaned silverware. The rag for the th to like big fat funky booty because we were in these bars yeah. mm -hmm. and it was like get people moving get people partying sell alcohol mm. or you're fucking fired and that was our job we were an attraction that promoted the sale of alcohol so you know that there was that kind of like intuitive realization like oh I, I can't do the same stuff I do in my bedroom here because you know no one will hear me or no one will pay attention to me yeah. So there was a very quick like pivot musically when I moved to the city because just because of the inherent nature of the the places that I was playing in. And then then so the 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 guys in my band kind of spotted me and you know I I'm a very, you know, kind of natural frontman. So it was like Eric basically the guitar player of the Spin Doctors like scouted me and was just like, dude, we're starting a band, you know, mm -hmm. it's like, cool. So then I get in a room. So I'd, I'd been in, uh, me and my best friend, Ben Lewis had like a, an acoustic duo called the fun bunnies. And we were like Simon and Garfunkel on crack. <laughs> then, you know, Eric and Mark and Aaron had all been, you know, working in, um, in bands in ensembles since they were, teenagers yeah. you know getting paid you know Aaron Aaron our drummer was um when he was 14 he was playing like weddings and stuff with mm. these like you know 60 and 70 year old dudes you know full horn section and he was right, playing right. like wow. these swing bands and Eric was in a million bands um like original bands but also playing in cover bands like around Toronto yeah and Mark was a working bass player you know had been a working bass player for a really long time so I was super green mm. Um, I'd written like Jimmy Olsen's blues, for example. So Jimmy Olsen's blues, um, as you're saying, you know, it's just like sort of a vamp. It's just the same three chords, like the whole way through. Mm -hmm. So we're playing the intro and I would just like come in and like Mark was like, come in at the end of the phrase. And I'm like, what? And he's like, come in after four bars. I'm like, what? I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I mean, I, I knew what he meant conceptually, but I didn't right. really know what that meant mm. in the context of like, all of a sudden, I was like, oh, God, I'm one, two, three, four, right. two, two. Right. I didn't really, like, wasn't practicing, like, feeling. Now, like, you know, if you're a working musician, like, you can feel four bars or eight bars yeah. or, right. or 16 bars. You just feel it go by, you know. Right. But at that point, I didn't have that kind of, like, experience. So Aaron was just like, Chris, 
I'm like, what? He's like, wait for the fill. I was like, okay, so come in after the fill. I got you, buddy. Don't worry about it. <laughs> and um, so it would be like, you know, boom, and I would come in and it'd be like, yeah, all right, cool. <laughs> So those guys really kind of showed me the ropes of being, you know, how to be in a band and how to like take all the theory I knew and and actually be in a band and communicate musically. It's interesting when you kind of build this picture of, of how your influences came together and how the band came together and, and you talk about sort of the, the, the bar pleasing element of it, you know, get people dancing, get people drinking. Yeah. And you think about the way the Spin Doctors were put together and these sort of, you know, some Chuck Berry riffs, some with what yeah. Eric was doing, you know, and then yeah, the bass yeah. was kind of slappy and funky and there was mm -hmm. a dancey element and then some humor to the lyrics. Yep. I think about this in 1991. And in retrospect, I look back and I, th and I think about all the music we were listening to at the time, which ranged from you guys and Blues Traveler on one side, then over to Pearl Jam and Nirvana on the other. Mm -hmm. I love Pearl Jam and Nirvana. A fairly humorless yeah genre though yeah and i'm thinking about what must have been kind of a signing frenzy for humorless bands mm -hmm. and then you guys are a band that was radio ready yeah but very entertaining yeah how did you see yourselves in the sort of broader picture of what was going on musically in, in 91 um that's a great question uh, you know like you know the the short answer is i was just doing my thing yeah you know what i mean and i didn't really give a fuck what anybody else was doing right. and and i i liked Nirvana, I don't like Pearl Jam. Um, I love Soundgarden. I love all those bands except Pearl Jam. I just don't like Eddie Vedder's voice. I think he's like sort of blustering. <laughs> and you know, rock and roll is rock and roll is a really interesting medium because there's a lot of machismo and there's a lot of like, you know, the idea of like rocking. You know, yeah, it's like. And it's it's this constrictive <laughs> thing in your throat where you're like, I'm gonna rock now, you know. Right. And like, but what's what is really fucking rocking is, is fucking really truly like letting out a, a true emotion. There's mm. nothing more rocking rocking than that, you know. Mm. And um, and when you think about it that way, um, you know, flamenco and like jazz like a guy like john coltrane where it's just like pure truth and emotion you know coming yeah. out of that horn that's all like kind of coming from this same primal place this this like shared need for expression mm -hmm. and need for like an emotional outlet and we're like these social animals that like exist in this framework of like behavior mm -hmm. and i'm sitting like nicely on your couch with my legs crossed with this microphone here and i'm not like just like standing on the arm of the couch like waving my underwear over my head like <laughs> yes. you know hooting and howling you know what i mean so i mean which is what i really want to be doing right now um, go for it man <laughs> you know what i'm saying like we all want to be we all want to be like running around with our dicks like flapping in the breeze but we can't so we have to find these like socially acceptable ways of letting out this like yeah. deep howl that's like dying to escape all of us all the time. And, um, and so um, I like philosophically, I, like I said, I, I really liked those bands. I thought they took themselves way too seriously. Mm -hmm. And I also like philosophically, like I feel that a philosophy or a body of work uh, artistically if it doesn't offer some kind of a consolation, hmm. then it is a failure. Hmm. It, it's it doesn't take any kind of a of a of an advanced intellect to discern that the world is patently unfair and cruel, hmm. and a, and a, basically a fucking horrible place, you know. But what does require like a tremendous amount of thought and effort is to explain through whatever it is you're doing. Why, when our leaders are corrupt, we're surrounded by 
corruption and dishonesty. Why should you wake up in the morning and continue to be a good person? Why should you fulfill the romantic ideal of what it is to be honest and kind and true in a world that isn't honest, kind, or true, or fair? Why should you be fair when the world is unfair? And that's like, you know, this essential human dilemma. So that's where the humor comes in for me. Mm -hmm. Because, like, the world is fucking absurd. Yeah. You know, the world is absurd. <laughs> yeah. And humor humor is this, like, sort of abstracted attempt to to find a logic in that. We laugh because it doesn't make sense. Hmm. It doesn't, we can't make sense of it. But the closest we can do is, like, find that place where the truth of it clashes with the falsehood mm-hmm. of it. And and then we laugh, you know. Right, right. And um, so I, I, I like I said, I, I thought I really... I got a kick out of like Nirvana and and Soul Sound, but you know I'm I'm saddened by like the fate of Kurt Cobain, mm-hmm. and I'm saddened by the fate of of um, Chris because he was fucking amazing singer. I mean, singer to singer, that guy mm-hmm. like I saw yeah. him live a couple times, and I met him a few times, and he was just like a lovely, sad human being. And I always felt like those guys, I was like, you know, it's just, yeah. you're just a little bit off the mark mm. because their nihilism, like I am not a nihilist. I'm mm-hmm. vehemently philosophically opposed to nihilism. And that was always my problem with the Pearl Jams and the Nirvanas of the world mm-hmm. was that, that nihilistic seed, you know, the fruit of the poison tree of nihilism because you know, when you when you fall into like a nihilistic approach, then you can do anything. You know, mm-hmm. it leads down this like, it leads down this like black hole mm-hmm. of pessimism, and it doesn't take you anywhere that's, you know, gonna make the world a better place. Going to like help you be a better, you know, parent. Going mm-hmm. to like <clears throat> help the people who listen to you, or help you not kill yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that that even with just thinking in in that same context of, you know, um, being serious versus having fun, you know, uh, even a, a song like little miss can't be wrong is a, is a very fun roll down the windows on a sunny day, feel good type of song. And a lot of stuff that you guys were, were doing feels that way, but the lyrics of that song are actually are, on the page, are pretty barbed on the page. <laughs> it's ill. It's a fucking, it's a fucking takedown. Song, people think that song is about like an ex-girlfriend or an ex-wife of mine but it's actually about my dad's ex-wife uh-huh. it's about see this is another thing you know about the whole spin doctor's legacy that you know at this point i i like kind of putting this out there because our our pocket full of kryptonite you look at pocket full of kryptonite and there's shit on that record that is as dark as anything you know Nirvana ever put out refrigerator car yeah. is like that's a that's a fucking heavy song and it's about my stepmom My background is as dark as any of those guys. Like eight years old, um, moved to Australia where, you know, I'm like the American kid. You know, I get the shit kicked out of me all the time. My parents get divorced. Um, my dad marries this woman who fucking hates me. Mm. She used to kick my door down when I was a teenager at four o'clock in the morning. I'm like, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old. Like I come from this like really abusive background, but I didn't come away from it taking myself super seriously. Mm. And... Um, I think one of the reasons like Pocketful of Kryptonite holds up um, is because uh, 
that record has a lot of different kinds of songs mm-hmm. on it. And then I also felt that thematically, I think I did a good job of writing stuff that was dark, darker, lighter, funnier, more mm. serious. And, and um, you know, I, I still am, I still am that way. And I, I, I don't know if it's like as much a um, artistic choice anymore yeah. or just like the way I write. You know, mm. I just sort of, like your soul, I think if you're an artist, you know, your soul is a garden and you want to like wander all the way through it mm. and find all of the weird different like plant life. And sometimes you're working like with the fruit at the top of the tree and sometimes you're working with like the roots, you know, yeah. down in the soil. And you want to you use all these different like parts of your garden. Yeah. Um, you know, I think about it as you're talking about it. I'm, I'm sort of, you know, reconnecting with, you know, the teenager and both of us that listened to the songs and resonated with them and everything. And, and, and you do see there's not the sort of bravado of a I'm walking on sunshine kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But there is sort of, yeah, Little Miss can't be wrong. You know, you're sort of um, almost fighting against this, this antagonist character. Mm-hmm. Um, Jimmy Olsen's Blues, you're identifying with, with Jimmy and not Superman. Right. Um, two Princes, you're not the one with the diamond rings. Yeah. A song which... I really love How Could You Want Him When You Could Have Me. Right. It's a matter of Cain and Abel And I can feel your name Underneath the table And there's a dangled by the south and as a 16 year old i think we all knew what it was like to have a little hard time getting a prom date or, yeah. or anything sure, like yeah. that yep and and that music it connects but but what's happening musically of course is not morose mm-hmm. it's done yeah. with humor yeah it's it's and humor's a weapon Oh yeah, and so when you get sort of handed that as a kid, I think that's that's part of where I, I felt the music really connecting as a listener, um, which drove me to then buy the Home Belly Groove album, uh-huh. right? Because I'm like, well, I got this. <laughs> yeah. What else have they got? Yeah, yeah. What else am I gonna get? And that took me into a really different place because we hadn't seen you yet, mm-hmm. and I didn't realize the live experience was much more expansive. Yeah. Than the three and a half minute pop songs that yeah. we heard on the radio. Uh, where did you guys, you know, did you guys kind of like draw those lines yourselves as creatives? Was there a lot of label input saying like, hey man, you guys got to turn this six minute thing into a radio thing for us? Or did you guys already have that sensibility? No, we were, you know, we were, we met at um, at, at a music conservatory. So we have this like distinctly 20th century musical training. Mm-hmm. So we were trained as studio musicians and we were also trained as live musicians. So it was always like part of our training to draw a distinction like live, you know, you cut loose and yeah. you walk into a studio and um and you want to make something that is like structured, mm-hmm. palatable to the ear and um you know, if you want to simplify in the studio because if something's like too busy in the studio, it's right. not going to be you know, palatable to the ear to be listened to over and over again. Yeah. And um, it was, it was a, you know, a distinct part of our training. So you guys are like an A&R's dream. Like you already, yeah. you already got it. Yeah, we, we, we worked with um, Peter Denenberg um, on that record and did a lot of pre-production and, and, um, and there was a lot of discussion that went into it. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't like they had to like twist Whipped our into arm. Shape, or, yeah, yeah. the there was definitely a certain amount of like, you know, on that record, for example, Shinbone Alley, Hard to Exist, it's like seven minute, mm-hmm. like Odyssey. We had to kind of be like, no, we're going to like, yes. we're also going to cut loose yeah. a, in a portion of this record. and um, But that was, it wasn't like we had to fight for that. It was well, sort of like... You'd given them five singles. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was like, it was kind of like, they they understood that there was a certain amount of yeah. that that our fans expected from us and and that was like part of our like just natural expression 
as musicians. But yeah, it was it, it, we were trained that way. We were yeah. trained to like, you know, I was trained to make records. We were trained to make records on tape, so, and a roll of tape, you know, two inch tape, it cost two hundred fifty bucks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we were trained to like nail a song in in not too many takes, you know, we're, mm-hmm. and 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 we had to arrange the song because you couldn't just like edit stuff, you know, couldn't just like record something and then cut and paste, right. you know, different sections of it into different parts. Like, you know, if you wanted to edit something on tape, you know, it was like a dude in a white lab coat with a <laughs> razor blade right. cutting this like $250 like roll of tape that you were paying for, right. you know? So, you know, we were just trained in a, in a very like old school sure. kind of, you know, medieval sort of right. 20th century way. <laughs> well, you know, I want to talk, I, I want to, um, talk a little bit and, and spend doctors, you know, it's almost like when you have an album that's that huge, it, it, it winds up overshadowing. I mean, there's, there's multiple spend doctors albums we could talk about, but I don't want to give short shrift to your, um, solo stuff, which, yeah, which I think is, is really interesting. Um, and, you guys kind of have another thing in common, actually, with some vocal cord issues. So maybe you want to ask about that process and how, you know, how you sort of emerged from that with your solo career. I yeah, I, I mean, I've had my own issues with that. I was, you know, a singer for a while, not so much now. Um, went through a, a year of really difficult vocal stuff that I have, personally haven't really fully bounced back from. What what happened? Uh, spasmodic dysphonia was the diagnosis. Oh shit! Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I had Botox shots for a couple of years. Oh my god! Yeah. Probably still going to be a part of my day to day but um Fuck. so i know you know you went through in 99 your own serious bout with mm-hmm. vocal problems yeah which is more than just a career thing it's an identity thing yeah yeah there's an emotional aspect that goes yeah. along with it yeah where you wonder am i still me yeah am i going to be able to do this again how did you manage that well you know what happened to me it happened to me i had i had um um a, a paralysis of my right vocal cord um for a year in 99, it happened to me again in 2015, um, which is very rare. To, to have that happen twice is extraordinarily rare. Mm. Um, and it fucked me up. It really fucked me up. I, I mean, I know what you mean. It's like, it's an identity thing. I have been processing emotion. I'm a pretty repressed guy, believe it or not. Like, um, emotionally... I, it's taken me a really long time to like, um, learn how to like process, particularly like anger and stuff. Cause in the household that I described to you guys before, I grew up in a household where like anger just got super out of control mm. super quickly. So mm. it's really difficult for me to process anger in a, in a, um, open and productive way. I'm yeah. sort of like got an on and an off switch mm. and it's just like, I'm either like flipping out like once every five years, you know, or just pushing it down and pushing it down. So I process a lot of like my negative emotions comes out through music. Mm. So, you know, I've been in therapy for like 18 years or something like that. So the first time it happened to me, I was still kind of like repressed. But now that I've sort of like opened up a little bit more, it was really fucking hard. Believe it or not, like, being more mentally healthy made it huh. harder for me to deal because um what I you know what I really realized was how much emotion I processed through singing mm-hmm. and um and I had some like post traumatic stress stuff come up from my childhood yeah. because I wasn't like processing um you know these emotions the way so it was it was actually like it was kind of productive mm-hmm. it also like you know I think once in a while life just fucking jams you and you just walk away. If you come through it, you walk away going like, "Fuck, you know, this is this huge pillar in my life. This is a huge like element of everything that I do." But also, my wife loves me, you yeah. know, and also my kid loves me, and yeah. um, I've made a lot of people happy during the course of my life, and mm. like um, my fucking cat loves me you know and i live in this i live in this then like you are a lucky man i live yeah you know i mean yeah cats love people. my cats cat love my cat love me. like goddamn saint francis of assisi man um uh, so i don't know uh you know it, it it was extremely extremely difficult and i was working 
I had begun work on Angels and One-Armed Jugglers, my mm -hmm. new record. And um, I had kind of been coming at it from uh, a more like practical. I was going to do like a broken down kind of acoustic record. And it was really funny because Roman, the producer, was like, I was like, yeah, I want to do this like broken down kind of acoustic thing. And he was familiar with the material. And he was like, okay. And just kind of like, yeah, okay. And he had this funny grin on his face. And then when I had a year to like think about that funny grin on his face... You know, you're I at realized, the brass section. <laughs> yeah, I realized like I realized like these tunes are bigger than yeah. that, and he knows it, and he's not gonna like push that agenda on me. But when I came back, I was like, okay, fuck this. We're hiring Sean Pelton, hmm. who is like, you know, I'm a drummer snob. I work with Aaron Comas, who's arguably like, not arguably, undisputedly one of the best drummers in the world. Maybe like the best drummer. Hmm. I don't know. Um, and so I'm like, if I'm gonna work with another drummer besides Aaron. It's going to be somebody amazing. And the only guy I know who's as good as Aaron is Sean Pelton, um, who is the Saturday Night Live drummer, and he's on zillions of records. And he has such a like beautiful, iconic style of playing. And I just, I, I got, um, you know, uh, Stephen Bernstein on the slide trumpet, and, and like um, uh, Henry Hay did, did like these string arrangements and these brass arrangements for me. And, you know, it's a big record. It's got a ton of scope. And part of that was lo losing my voice. You know, part of that was mm. like, what happens What happens if this is the last record I ever fucking make, you know? Yeah. Like, it's, do I want it to be like a fiddly thing with ukuleles or something like that? Or do I want to like step in here and do like a fully realized, um, you know, execution yeah. of these songs where like the sky's the limit and anything the song is. So some of these songs on the record are like, you know, the world accordion to Garp. You know, the song, the lyrics mention tuba, guitar, and accordion. And so those are the instruments on it. The tall grass sighs for secrets If you listen for her song In your memory you can keep it Even if you get it wrong She plays it on your heartstrings Starting just as it gets dark on the world beyond to God. I wanted to point that song out because that lyric stood out to me. I, I'm the worst kind of literature major. Um, oh. Is the the not terribly well read literature major? Oh, yeah. Like you know, <laughs> I love to pull it out in conversation. Well, I, I'm a lit major, so let me speak to this. Um, but then people ask me, like, what are you reading these days? I'm like, uh, Rolling Stone. Um, but but I, you know, when I saw a, a reference to the world according to Garp, uh, yeah. it also reminded me of you know being a kid and hearing you know the Gildensterns and Rosencrantzes. Yeah. And, and how does being a consumer of art playing to you being a producer of art? Mm -hmm. Um, I am like the exact opposite. I'm the, like the mirror image of what you are. Like yeah. I never went to college, um, but I, I'm a voracious reader of like, I, I'm, I'm, um, I am dysgraphic. I'm like learning disabled. Mm -hmm. So it was very difficult for me to learn how to read. So it's just as hard for me to read like, you know, some trashy Grisham novel or something like that as it is for me to read like Homer. So I so just if you're read, gonna put forth the effort, it might as well be I just good. might as well read I might as well be reading like, you know, Dante <laughs> yeah. as like some trashy thing. So like I've I I've just you know, I'm I'm I've always been super into um you know, I I, I love Shakespeare and I like poetry and I just and I also when I met Eric Shankman he was like, yeah, I don't listen to rock and roll. And I was like, what? He's, he's like, nah, I mean, you know, I, I, knew, I, I knew how to play like every Led Zeppelin song and every Rolling Stones song exactly like by the time I was 14. Mm. So just, I'm like tired of that shit. And I, and I also think he's like, you know, it's a bit of a hat on a hat. You're a rock and roll musician and rock and roll is your influence. It's a bit like rock and roll is sort of rock and roll like blues and like flamenco and like a lot of a lot of like these musical forms it's kind of prescribed you know there's mm. there is um you get too far afield 
motif-wise, it's not rock and roll anymore, which is fine. But you know, mm. if you're playing rock and roll, it is sort of um, you know, it's a it's a there are these like traditional forms, and um, he was really into bebop, mm. and um, I was like, wow, that's really cool. Like your influences in rock and roll are from outside of rock and roll. Yeah. So I took that to another level and was always really into literature, but I started like, I mean, I've always really been into visual art too. So like I, I, um, I, you know, it sounds really weird, but I love like Greek vase painting and, you know, impressionist paintings. And, yeah. you know, I go to art museums and just like, it's not like I'm gonna be like, Oh, this was such a beautiful vase, or something like that, <laughs> you know. But, but the, but the emotional content, because we're all like, again, we're all going back to like standing on the, on the arm of your couch, like you know, waving my underwear over my head, howling, like that's all the same shit. Whether right. it's whether it's opera, bebop, painting, sculpture, you know, it's all we're all just like we're all just trying to get that howl yeah. out there, yeah. and and every era, you know back to like cave paintings and you know I saw this fucking thing on YouTube this guy was like yes we found this um you know 50,000 year old flute made out of a um sheep's shin bone and we um you know of course we couldn't play that one um so we um made like an exact replica on another sheep bone with the same the holes the same distances apart and he's like and it sounds like this and he plays it and it's fucking, it's a pentatonic scale. It's a blue scale. Wow. And he's like, as you can see, it's a pentatonic scale, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, my fucking brain exploded. Yeah. I was like, somebody <laughs> 45,000 years ago probably played Smoke on the Water. <laughs> you know what I mean? Those notes probably came yeah. out of a fucking... If there was a guitar a fucking, center, then totally. <laughs> somebody probably played fucking sheep and That's smoke, amazing. smoke on the Water. And, and like, that blew my fucking mind. And um, so, you know... The essence of it for me to to kind of go back to several of your questions at once is like I see virtuosity first of all like this is all like a vehicle for humor and making people happy and stuff but behind it all I think there's a deadly seriousness and a, and a, and like a, a pursuit of mastery you know mm. and um, and virtuosity and and the purpose in my mind of virtuosity is to be so well-versed in what you're doing that you can purely put your personality into it. And then you don't have to pursue originality at all. Because if you are versed enough in whatever you're playing or whatever you're doing to put your pure personality into it, the only thing that's unique in the world is a human personality. Or, you know, I think animals have pretty unique personalities too, but a personality is the only thing that's unique. So if you can purely throw your personality into what you're doing you're going to be original but i mean that's that's the way i see it is it's all it's all about it's all about getting good enough mm. to 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 microscopically be able to say exactly what you mean in an authentic way and then you're right. good to go you know this year being the the 30th anniversary of of the beginning yeah. of the spin doctors. And, and, you know, you guys have, have, you broke up for a time, you came out, you, you did your, you know, first solo record shag and, um, second solo record poncho and the kid, but then the spin doctors kind of come back into play. So now you're in mm. this place in your life where you're in this band. Um, you're also a solo artist, you know, on the, on the, um, angels and one arm jugglers record. I hear like influences of, of kind of the band and, mm -hmm. and all those like, you know, jazz influences and all this stuff. And, and even, you know, what the spin doctor, some of the stuff, I mean, you guys made a whole album of original blues stuff. that was like legit blues band stuff. So it's, you know, if, if you want to say like, okay, what's Chris Barron in a nutshell, it's kind of hard to, to just say, okay, here's what it is. Yeah. But I wonder, you know, when you have the kind of commercial success that you guys had kind of right out of the gate mm -hmm. and the general public mm -hmm. is most aware of songs you wrote when you're 19, 20, yeah. 21 years old, you yeah. know, 
as a person who is a, who is continued to be a creator, you know, right. who is continuing to make interesting music instead of just, well, let's recycle the, the thing that worked, you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. How, how do you kind of wrestle with that when you know, like maybe you're going to go to a show and you've got something killer that is like kind of come out of your deepest guts and, and there's going to be somebody that's like play two princes, you know I mean? Yeah. How yeah. do you, how do you kind the, of look, you know, it's, it's my, it's my job to play two princes every night. Hmm. That's my job. Yeah. You know, everybody loves that fucking song. I fucking love that song. Yeah. That's a great fucking tune. Yeah. You know, it never, it's, I always say, uh, you know, it never went to number one. Um, because Michael Jackson was like in number one and then it stayed at number two for like, <laughs> I said number two, it stayed at number two for, uh, <laughs> stayed at number two for like months. Right. And, right. um, and then right when we had a shot of like making it to number one, Icky Breaky Heart went to number oh, one right. and Icky Breaky Heart kept this up. So I always say like, look, I would rather have only gotten a song to number two. I'd rather forego the number one and not have to sing Achy Breaky Heart for the rest of my career. <laughs> <laughs> totally. You know, um, so I mean, like, I'm lucky. That's a, that's a, I think it's, I think it's a great song. Um, it's fun to perform. Right. Uh, I don't mind doing it every night. That's yeah. my job. People, yeah. uh, you know, people sometimes drive like 10 fucking hours to see a show. Yeah. To hear that song because it's the song they got engaged to. It's the song that was playing on the, you know, my, my, um, my friends had a baby a little while ago and, um, they had, they made a playlist and like, you know, they put two princes on the playlist yeah. and right when the baby was born, two princes came on, you know, nice. I mean, that, that's fucking cool. You yeah. know, like right. I, I love that. I, yeah. I, 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 you know, grew up with a lot of alienation in my life, you know, living in a foreign country and, you know, to me that in my soul to know that I put something out there that, um, that plugs me forever Hmm. into like the, the inner mind of the world, you know, is, um, is humbling and gratifying and it, and it connects me, you know, to the, to this life of mine that, that, Hmm. that's been, you know, my, my, existence is a somewhat lonely one. You know, I like, I spent a lot of time in hotel rooms away from my cats and my wife and my daughter. And, you know, it's nice to have like something like that. It's like a touchstone for me yeah. to feel connected to the world. So like, it's a very small price to play that song every night. I play Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. You come and see me. You come and see the Spin Doctors. You come see my solo show. Don't worry. I'm going to fucking play <laughs> Two Princes. I'm going to play Little Miss Can't Be Wrong. Right. You know, um, because it's my job. Yeah. And it's my, it's like, you know, thank, thank everybody out there, whoever had a nice thought about me, you know, or whoever put on a song or ever like, you know, liked something I did. Like, I owe you. Yeah. Mm. That's, I owe you at least that. Everybody out there who's like ever put on one of my records or bought a record like there, you guys are my fucking bosses, Mm. you know, and to, to fucking spend four minutes playing a fucking song that everybody fucking loves. It's a very small price to pay. <laughs> well, I think a cool way to, uh, to end our visit here, it would be to, since I'm going to be the guy that goes two princes, <laughs> I would love to hear you play that. And I would love to hear you play, um, a song, one of your favorites from, from your latest record. angels and one arm jugglers record. Cool. Yeah. Um, Oh shit. And would you like me to break one of your guitars? That'd be perfect. While I'm at it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, cool, man. Now you're me, I thought we'll just show you the leaders that now. Mary-
got no future dream But it would have been love a heart to beat But it would have been love a heart to face it If you want to call me baby Let's go ahead now and give you Like to tell me baby Let's go ahead now and give you Want to find me now Let's go ahead now and give you Like to talk the hours go ahead now You give me eyebrows. I will comment when it concludes. Like Elvis, I've left the building. Boosie Susie on my arm. I'm off to make a killing where the sweet life's lost its charm. I know that high above me, that there's an order in the sky. Play for the pearly gate man, he'll show you where they keep the pie. And gazing, angels blazing on the French horn and a harp and the world accordion to garb la 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 
啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦啦。Where are the guitars? Pick your pockets. There's a back door leading to a place where we can make some love among the wild oats, rye, and rue. If you listen very closely, your ear down to the floor. Oh shit, that's not how it goes. <laughs> your ear down to the floor. You can hear the landlord humming just like. Every night before, sweet and melancholy, and maybe just a little sharp on the world accordion to guard. La 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 la, la 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 la, la 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 la. My wife is a musician, and if I like, just like stop like this, playing in the other room, <laughs> no she'll resolve. be in the other room. She goes, "Resolve it!" And I have to be like, oh. <laughs> "That's so great." <laughs> Chris, that was amazing. If you had told our 17-year-old selves that you'd yeah. be over here singing and playing for just us, we would have crapped our pants. <laughs> so uh, this is this has been really cool. Loved, this is uh, the first time that I've sat and taken video of any of our guests. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I think that's yeah. Yeah. Wow. So so yeah. we we had a fanboy. I'm honored. Right yeah. 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 Thanks. So guys. thanks for being here, man. Great this discussion. Great. Thank you. Thank you awesome. very much Thank for you. having me. Let's let's do this again. Let's yeah. do it. We should do this more often. For the, for the 60th anniversary. Uh, yeah. <laughs> See you in 30 years. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. Again, you can find us by searching for Songcraft Show, all one word. While Songcraft is available to our listeners at no charge, we ask friends like you to consider becoming a Songcraft patron at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash songcraftshow. There you can pledge as little as $2 per month to help Songcraft continue its mission of bringing you great interviews with great songwriters. Plus, you'll have the opportunity to access bonus content and get the chance to enjoy unique rewards and experiences as a member. We look forward to getting together again with you for the next episode of Songcraft Spotlight on Songwriters.